Welcome to Dr. DM, a podcast where three pseudo-professional D&D players take questions from game masters to help them plot out their stories and to plot against their parties. The doctors are in. Hi. Hi, guys. Hello. So, how was everybody's week? I've forgotten most of it by now. Yeah. That's eh. fair. That's valid. <laughs> It is what it is. It, it, it is um, what it is. Grad school work. And I'm sure there was something else in the middle of it that I don't remember. So, yeah. That is also fair. Yeah. It's been it's been rainy and wet here the last couple of days, which has kind of been icky. But, you know. It's been life. It's been the hottest of the year for us. <laughs> All that rain moved down to South Texas. Um, yeah. Our first heat wave. It almost hit 80. Wow. And Congrats. When you live in Seattle, 80 in April is insane. <laughs> Everyone's losing their mind. I'm not. I'm sitting outside every day in the sun because it's wonderful. This is what I want. Fair, fair. What, what, I know, Tasha, you said you've been busy, but anything fun happen? Or just busy? Uh, mostly just busy. Okay, well. Hopefully more this, fun things will occur next week. This can be your fun. Well, I guess I hope so. Hopefully. Mm-hmm. We have a fun monster for our monster corner. What do we call it? Monster Weekly. Monster Weekly? How could I forget? Uh, Monster Weekly, yeah. So we're still in the bees, and this week we're talking about fan favorite beholders. They're fun. They 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 are fun and a very classic monster. Um, they're uh, xenophobic lunatics, which is the best way to think about it. Um, they're like super duper private. They basically hate everybody, just everybody. So people coming into their lair is like an instant reason to kill them. But they're also like super smart and are known for for like creating like plagues and stuff like that and having weird fungus that controls things. So these guys can be pretty scary because a lot of times their lairs are like full of other monsters just to make sure that people don't get close to them. I'm looking at the original art on the Wizards of the Coast website, and they've got the original edition, first, second, third, fourth, blah, blah, blah. Oh my god. The original just looks like a round orb, like a moon, with an eye and lips. Yeah! And it's reminding me a lot of um, the second episode of the ninth Doctor, Doctor Who, with the skin lady. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks a lot like that, but an orb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. But yeah, Beholders have only, for the record, gotten creepier over the years. They actually can look several different ways. So there's some Beholders that are like tentacles, which is the most common way they look. But some Beholders are described as having like crustacean-like joints for their extra eyes. So they're like creepy spider eyeballs, which doesn't make them better at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna be honest I don't know very much about beholders I've heard of them of course because they are very common in D&D um, but I don't think I've actually faced one in a game before That I, and to be fair I don't think I've ever run a true beholder before either I've run some of the variants of beholders but from my reflect memory of them they're TPKs they will kill a party if they are not prepared to fight a beholder. Like, if they don't know they're going in to fight a beholder, the beholder could kill a whole party easily. Because of... Uh, in... No, I was just gonna say, uh, I threw a beholder, told them it was a beholder, and still, I almost killed someone. Yeah. Like, true death? Yeah, just, like, like knocked him to disintegration zero. ray. Yeah! Isn't that... That's the kicker, ain't it? Um... So let's just kind of go through their rays. They have 10 
eye stalks typically like really powerful beholders will have the 10 eye stalks and each eye stalk can do something different and um and then we'll talk about the anti-magic cone later but for now the eye stalks they are yeah one second let me i need to grab my volos because i forgot there's a whole alternate section about all the different ones you can give them fantastic these are the classic 10 though so we've got charm ray we've got a paralysis ray a fear ray a slow ray and uh invigoration ray a telekinetic ray a sleep ray a persona a, a petrification ray disintegration ray and my favorite the death There's ray. my favorite the billy ray <laughs> but um yeah no um <laughs> yeah so the disintegration ray and the death ray are both ones that will basically mm-hmm. insta kill a character if you get them down to low enough hit points they are insta dead and that's not there's no oh oops too bad you you can come back from that nope nope they're dead they're dead dead no saves do not pass go do not collect your 200 dollars. you are dead which is why they can be such a scary villain and then and then you add in the fact that they have legendary actions and can use their rays not on their turn and they have an anti-magic cone that's just constantly active on wherever their big-ass eyeball is looking. None of your magic items or spells work. But dude! <laughs> okay, you know you know how, like, the DMG has a sentient creature generator? Yeah. They have one of those for a uh, beholder, so you can make a personalized beholder. With personality traits and everything. Fantastic, because they're so scary... They they deserve their own kind of, like, modifications. Actually, this is really... I forget how awesome I... I remember looking through this when I was building my Beholder. They have... Let's see. They actually go through and give you a list of how to use their rays in other ways that aren't just straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, they give you variant icons because they have the anti-magic charm ray, or the death ray, disintegration ray, uh... here the rays. I feel like there's... Where's the other rays? Oh, don't forget gas spores, which are fantastic. Uh, yeah, so you can completely customize your Beholder. Or, and hear me out, if you don't think a normal Beholder is scary enough for your party, what about the Lich Beholder? Or the Death Tyrant? (laughs) Called it a Death Tyrant. And it's a CR-14 versus the standard CR-13. So it didn't really get that much scarier. Which just goes to say how scary an actual Beholder is. Do you want to talk about how, like, Beholders exist? Oh, yeah, sure. We, okay. Yeah, go ahead. We can cover Beholder existence. So, I mean, okay, let's be real. You probably have seen a few videos about this, but they dream themselves into existence and then dream everything around them into existence. And then, you know, that's how they just get other Beholders and other things that are Beholder kin. So, like, a Death Trainer is just a lit, like, it's is literally just a Beholder who was like, no, nah, I'm not going to die, and had a dream about it. And now it's undead. And and it's not a zombie Beholder, because those exist. It's an undead Beholder. That It's it's radically different. And so its layer actually is completely different than a, a, the layer of a normal Beholder. It, like, gets corrupted by the fact that it's undead. And instead of having an anti-magic icon, it has a negative energy icon. (laughs) Yep. So, let me see. Negative energy icon. Any creature in its view can't regain hit points. Period. And if it dies while under the zombie, the the, uh, uh, death tyrant's eye beam, it becomes a zombie instantly. So, this is really the biggest F you to a party you can throw at them. Because you can kill a player and then make them a zombie right away. So, yeah. Yeah, these these guys are scary as hell. It, it can be a little tricky, though, to determine, like, where their icon is at all times because you have to really pay attention to what direction your beholder is facing and then you have to constantly be pulling out the 150 foot uh cone that they radiate from their that's their vision range essentially so i um, kid you not when i i did this fight i literally just left a cone in the dm layer for roll 20 
and just kept moving it with the damn tyrant. It took me forever to, or it wasn't tyrant, the beholder. Mm-hmm. It took me forever to move the bloody thing. It wasn't going very fast because it is a beholder, but it made combat for me so much easier. Yeah, now that is true. Beholders only move 20 feet at a time. They don't move quickly. They float very slowly and they don't have any kind of walking They don't speed. need to. <laughs> Look at them. <laughs> no, they're scary as shit. And then there's the lesser beholder if you just kind of want to throw like a baby beholder at them there's these things called spectators that's terrifying in its own right yeah they're they're medium-sized creatures um they're they're summoned by beholders as lesser beholders to do their bidding well i don't think you you necessarily have to be a beholder to someone's one of these like wizards can do it they are are designed to be guardians so they can Mm -hmm. like watch a place I don't know, maybe like, a, I think that there's, what is this glimmers of madness? They're also insane. They communicate telepathically, but if you connect with them telepathically, they start to drive you insane and you have to roll on the madness chart. I was just reading that. So a beholder's mind is split in two and has two separate personalities. Each of these entities thought and acted on its own accord and it uh, usually distrusted each other. So they're in the same body, but it's two separate entities. Sane beholders were beholders whose minds were not divided, but they're still considered insane by non-beholder entities because they are insane. Also, uh, the Forgotten Realms wiki says, because there were two entities within a single beholder, that beholder should always be addressed by its full name, or they would perceive it as speaking to only one of the entities and may be insulted. Yep. It's so it's it's I feel like the the beholder just the way it was made was to be a, a walking orb of contradiction. So you literally can't. There's no way to reason with it. There's no way to win against it. It will always be right and you will always be wrong and then dead. For I think for insane beholders, I think that's true. For the ones that don't have split minds, I think you probably can negotiate with them. It's just never going to be in your favor. I think you probably can convince them not to kill you today but they're probably going to make you some kind of meat puppet of theirs like <laughs> it, it's never going to be good there is a non it's a homebrew set of maladies and illnesses and there is one called beholder spores it's a fungus that can infect a person, drive them crazy and blind. But in the process, when you breathe these spores in, anywhere the fungus grows, the beholder who originally created them can see out of them because his paranoia was so large, he created an entire creepy fungus species that filled up his layer so he could see the entire layer at all times. It's from the under. It, it is a it is a, an underdark fungus. It's non-canonical, it's a homebrew, but holy shit is it fun to play with. Because it's immune to uh, paladins, cure, remove disease and shit. So like they actually have to like work to get rid of it. Let, let me go to mushrooms because this isn't the first, there is a canonical mushroom though that, that beholders use. One second, let me, let me find it. It's that spore one that I talked about. Yeah, there's spores of madness and stuff. So beholders are scary in their own right and then there's a significant amount of lore surrounding them that kind of amp up their scary level from giant floating eyeball of death to insane giant floating eyeball of death that you might not actually be able to successfully kill because some beholders are so enraged by their own death that they either become death tyrants or they become zombie beholders which are not sentient they're zombies but they're also beholders and so they've got some of the beholder abilities and they're also in the monster manual back in the zombie section they've got their stats and they have eye beams still yeah they get some of the eye beams including disintegration ray (laughs) so imagine a death tyrant kills a bunch of other beholders to create its own lair and then resurrects all of those other dead beholders and makes them its zombie slaves so like if you really just wanted to run an entire campaign in the underdark beholders are probably going to be the thing that is going to terrorize your players the most let alone all of the other horrible stuff that exists in the underdark 
every once in a while, they could just accidentally end up in a beholder layer and then they're SOL because beholders are scary on their own. But then when you add in the fact that they get layer actions and that they have their own, you know, legendary actions that they can take, these things are freaking terrifying. And, and it's no reason why some people, some creatures that are driven insane in the underdark worship beholders like there's whole cults that are just around worshiping a beholder the same way some evil dragons are worshipped mm-hmm. well don't forget it's so there's, cool. there's actual xanathar right xanathar's um a beholder isn't he yeah he's a beholder that lives in i believe Waterdeep, and he runs the crime of Waterdeep. he's a crime lord so like yeah they they're scary as shit they don't have like um they don't have like like an, a lifespan. They just exist forever as long as they want to exist. Mhm. There's a race of beholders that can become invisible and teleport at will. Yeah, you know, if they weren't scary enough already. Oh, beholder pets, the gazers. Mhm. Those are just little mini beholders as if they were like kind of had a thought about themselves and then, then they made a mini version of them. They like half-assed themselves into existence? Yep. Can wizards have them as pets? Uh, once upon a time I thought they were familiar-ish, but they, they work like familiars for beholders. Great. Like your beholder wasn't scary enough already. Um, That's the other thing that's interesting about the beholders because they're... They're like bonkers. Their layers don't have to make sense. Their layers can be like full of dead ends and a maze and full of things that are like counterintuitive. Like, I don't know how many people know about the Winchester house, like how you open doors that lead to walls and stuff. That can be a beholder layer. It can absolutely be like an Escher painting. Like it can be totally insane. Things on the ceiling. There can be gravity shifts in the middle of it because the beholder essentially is warping reality. Its existence is warping reality. So you can completely go bonkers when you are making a layer for a beholder. It does not have to be all on the same plane. It doesn't have to make any sense. Um, and I do recommend keeping the madness table open in the um, DM's guide because being able to roll on that really adds an extra flavor to your characters into the players when they're running through a beholder layer because if they start picking up madness traits it makes the role playing crazy it makes the the game itself more entertaining because now they have to remember that they've got these like madness ticks they have to deal with it's a lot of fun just like if they're dealing with um what are they called mind flares same idea um also just for random funsies there's something called that, that gas bore. I, I pulled up a link to it. It's literally a giant floating fungus that looks like a beholder. And if you smash it, you take damage. Yeah, they're like beholder decoys. Yup. So there can be those, so there can be like a, a, a beholder layer. And then in the middle is a beholder decoy. And then the beholder sneaks up behind the party and kills them all. There is a reason these guys are. Oh, it's a reason in my mind why I always associate a beholder with a TPK. You can absolutely do that very easily without trying very hard. Yeah, it can be an accident. I mean, every time every time they use their rays, they choose three of the ten to do at once. I don't actually I don't know if they choose them. I think the original stat page says that it's random, so you can roll for them, but like Yeah, and reroll duplicates. Still. Yeah. So essentially exactly. you're just rolling a D ten. You're rolling three D ten and they're always different ones. Mm-hmm. All right. There's also the last thing that that they have currently out, which is the death kiss, which is if a d beholder dreams of what is it, getting their blood sucked out, they dream this thing into existence, and all it does is go around and drink blood. Wonderful. Does it have an eyeball? Lovely. Does it look like a beholder, or is it just like teeth? No. So it does look like a beholder with like these long like tentacles that have like blood sucking things at the end of them instead of eye stalks, but the third edition looks even cooler where it looks like they're giant spiky things gross thank you for sharing <laughs> that's fantastic so essentially it's like a vampire beholder yeah uh, except they're not technically undead or a mosquito it's a vampire it's a mosquito beholder 
It's a mosquito yeah. beholder. It's a massive. It's a massive mosquito with psychic powers. Yeah, I feel like mosquitoes weren't bad before. Oh yeah. So okay. So here, here is some of the the regional effects a beholder's layer has on its surroundings. So imagine you're in the underdark, which is already scary, and then reality stops making sense because you're near a beholder. So creatures within one mile of the beholder's layer sometimes feel as though they're being watched when they really aren't. A mile? A mile. Or they are, you know, it's kind of hard to say with a beholder. I mean, we've played with that tactic before, but not with a beholder. Yep. Uh, when the beholder sleeps... Minor warps in reality occur within a one mile of its lair and then vanish in 24 hours later. Marks on the cave wall might subtly change. An eerie trinket might appear where none existed before. Harmless slime might coat a statue and so on. These effects um, apply only to natural surfaces and non-magical objects that aren't on anyone's person. So like the walls can just start oozing blood for no reason. Whenever you want. Because if your beholder has two personalities, one personality can sleep and the other one can be awake. So this shit can happen all the time. Uh, and then and then we get to the layer actions. So these are the actions a beholder can take at the top of initiative round 20 every time it every round. It can decide that a, a portion of its terrain becomes just slime coated. You know, because it wants to. Uh, a bunch of uh, beholder can uh, can sprout a bunch of appendages on a wall within 120 feet of it that grab anybody near the wall. So no hiding. You can't hide near the walls because then a beholder will grab you. Like weird tentacles will come out of the wall to try to eat you. And then an eye can open on a solid surface within um, uh, 60 feet and it can randomly choose to blast one of its uh, eye beams out of it. Just for shits and giggles. And it's within 60 feet of it. So, like, around corners is applicable. It doesn't have to be within within range. Like, it doesn't have to see the spot for it to open the eye. You can just open an eye down a hallway and blast your entire party. So there's no hiding from these things. It's really hard to sneak up on one of them. And it will drive you insane as long as you're near one. Yeah! Beholders are great! <laughs> And there's one in Waterdeep. Yep. <laughs> just just hanging out in Waterdeep. So I was mm -hmm. trying to find... <laughs> I was trying to find where Beholders come from uh, because it's horrible. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that they are not derived from any particular type of mythology. Um, they were made exclusively for Dungeons & Dragons, created by the Coons Brothers. Um, and detailed by Gary Gygax for publication in the first iteration of Dungeons and Dragons in the seventies. So it's one hundred percent just a D and D Creation. monster, yeah. And over the years, has just been warped and changed to make it as customizable as you want mm -hmm. your death orb to be. Yep, it's a death eye orb. They're fun. Highly recommend. I mean, your party needs to know what they're walking into. They just, you, you, it, unless you want to kill them all, you need them to understand they're going to go fight a beholder. And, and that can be really important to let your party know that they're getting either close to a beholder layer or that the mission that they're heading to is to go fight a beholder of some kind. Because if they don't know that, you will kill them all. Like... It is, a, it is a CR 13 monster with a layer you're supposed to add two, so it's a CR 15 monster in its layer. I think that is severely underestimating the power a beholder can have. They don't have a lot of hit points. So if they do get attacks off, they, they can do serious damage to a beholder. But boy, are they going to be like sleep deprived and exhausted and have gotten the crap kicked out of them before they even get to fight the beholder. So just... Just understand the power level that you are dealing with when you throw a beholder at your party. Yeah, or if it goes too short, you can do what Matt Mercer did and just bring it the F back. Sure. <laughs> yeah, it can just cho choose to resurrect itself because that's how beholders work. <laughs> yeah, no. And so, like, yeah, if your party manages to sneak up on one then and they kill it, you can just decide that's not how the fight goes because they warp reality that 
So just they are they are a, a, a powerful villain and can be abused by you as the DM. So you do have to like keep an eye on it. But if you really want a hardcore fight with your party, throw a beholder at him. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. Well, all right. <laughs> Shall we move on? Sure. I was looking at um, this constant talk about eyes was making me think of the eye of Vecna. And I was wondering if it was at all connected and it isn't. But um, maybe in a future episode, we can start talking about gods because we haven't really touched on the pantheons at all in our series. I feel like that could lead to some pretty interesting conversations we'd have to pick like a world to tar- talk about but yeah because the pantheon changes. yeah i think we we'd have to limit pretty hard but like we could do you know the, the big two yeah we could but that's for another day today our first appointment is talking about dm inspiration so what is it and how do we use it which are great questions, because I avoid it at all costs. <laughs> yeah, Beth, I feel like you're the one who knows the most, or at least has the most, like, use experience with inspiration. Mm-hmm. So, inspiration, this kind of inspiration, is mentioned in both the Player's Handbook and the DM's Guide. It's more explained and laid out in the DM's Guide. So if you really, like, want to dig it, into how it works according to the guide um it's on page 240 it's kind of the start of the inspiration layout but the gist of it is you as the dm have decided one of your players has done something really cool really to character super heroic you know is deserving of like a reward from the cosmic energies of the universe and they are gifted with inspiration. This is essentially like a, a choice to re-roll a save, an attack roll, uh, a skill check. Um, I think there's something else. Yeah, ability check, attack roll, or saving throw. It's essentially granting them advantage that they get to use at will uh, uh, because the universe likes them. They only are allowed to have one inspiration at a time, though. So, but it carries over between sessions. You don't want to confuse it with the bardic inspiration, which is a different thing, uh, because it will work for essentially different dice, uh, because you just add to it. Uh, even though I think it's drawing from the same cosmic energy that the DM inspiration is, uh, but the good way to remember DM inspiration is it's a free reroll of, of of a d20, so it works like like best set advantage. Yeah, it's essentially free advantage. And it stacks. You can choose to use your, your, your GM inspiration with the bardic inspiration if you've been given some. So, like, it's a stackable use. But, again, it, it's advantage. But it's different from, like, if somebody grants you advantage, that's great. If you still flub the roll and you have inspiration, you can re-roll again. One die, but yeah. One, yeah, one die, but it allows you to re- re-roll that one flub. So, like, if you had advantage, flubbed it twice, you can try a third time. But the way you reward it can be, it's really GM-dependent. Um, some of the examples they list is for particularly useful and important role-playing. So, like, if you're trying to encourage your party to role-play more, and if they have, like, a deep conversation or an important conversation with each other, or they figure out a plot point in-game while talking to each other in-character, that might be a a chance to um, give people inspiration. Doing something heroic. Like, this paladin runs into the burning orphanage and saves children. Yeah, they probably need inspiration for that, because, I mean, come on. Uh, or if they get a victory. So, like, if they kill a dragon, that might be inspiration-worthy. The universe is like, you guys have been so cool, here's some inspiration for killing that monster or for for succeeding at whatever your, your task was. Other ones are people who, like, really immerse themselves in the world. So, like, if you want to encourage players to be, like, remind, remembering that they're in, you know, a D&D world, and so, like, if they want to, like, Instead of saying, you know, curses that, that are applicable outside of D&D, but they use, like, in-game curses, that can be a reason to give somebody inspiration because they're staying immersed in the world. And finally, players 
can give their inspiration to other players. So if for whatever reason, one of your players thinks the other person needs to do something cosmically cool, it is essentially like giving them inspiration without needing a reason. So like without taking the aid action, like you can't aid them in this, but you really want your, your party member who is across the room from you to be able to, you know, stake that vampire and they missed. And you're like, no, you stake that vampire because I said so. And so from like across the room, you can transfer the inspiration. There are other ways of using inspiration and there's a variant where players can only award each other inspiration. So like the group itself decides that this other person did something so cool that the party unanimously is like this person gets inspiration because of how cool it was. That's cool. So yeah, I so like it doesn't have one. to be the GM awarding it. Yeah, so you can have like a, a table agree to give somebody inspiration. I like that. Mm -hmm. There's one other version which I have used in the past, which is essentially just ripping off Pathfinder's hero points. Mm-hmm. Which is everyone at the start of the game gets one, uh, and they keep it until they use it, and they don't get it back until another start of the game. Mm -hmm. So everyone kind of gets one one freebie. Now, this is a completely variable rule. You don't have to use inspiration. You can completely ignore this option in the game, because it might feel too much like metagaming, like, like you're... You're manipulating the world because you're not just like relying on the roles, like you're changing the the world to, to how you, you want it or how the player wants it. And that can sometimes that sometimes doesn't vibe with certain GMs. But if you were a storyteller GM, this is like such a great tool. Yeah, I think it's a good tool. But I feel like at least in terms of if you are a storytelling GM in my experience, you're likely to just allow things to happen for the coolness of it if you're not as much of a rule monger <laughs> also. Um, so like, oh, and like if you make your your party like explain why they want to do this super cool, radical, world-breaking thing and you go, yeah, that's pretty cool. Just let it happen. Um, but again, that comes down to DM preference and decision making. I... I was going to say, I've never been opposed to DM inspiration. I just, much like fate points, forget to do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I was. Hard to remember to do. Yeah. When I was playing with my party of all brand new players, I think only one person on my party had ever played before. And it was like once for one afternoon and they didn't remember anything. Um, so everybody's brand new. I'm a brand new DM. Everybody's really confused. Um, and I knew that inspiration existed. I just didn't really want to try to introduce more rules for them. So instead, I went to Dollar Tree and I got those foil star stickers that you used to get in like third grade. And every time they did something really cool or really badass or really in character, I would give them a star sticker and then they could put them on their character sheet at the top of the character sheet and just have colorful star stickers they didn't do anything but it was a visual reminder that they did well that they are playing good that um i liked what they were doing that i was inspired by what they were doing so i feel like it, it inspiration can be both a like a strategy or tactic item as well as just positive feedback for the game that you're playing. Yeah, it can be positive reinforcement. Yeah. But yeah, some of the some of the ways that they have in here about tracking inspiration, um, these work for when you're sitting at a table, I think a little bit better than if you're playing online. Um, but if you're sitting at a table using poker chips the same way fate works, where you just give the player a poker chip and they can keep that between games. So as long as they've got their poker chip, it's their it's their inspiration chip. Or having a special set of d20s that like when someone does something good they get the inspiration d20 and so they have it and that's sort of that when they when they want to use it they roll their inspiration d20 there is um a good way about doing that because it limits how many points can be out on the board at any one time so if you are concerned about like like this being too manipulated it, it you have a cap yeah, yeah. So, like, there's only, like, you know, four inspiration tokens that can be out at one time. 
and and it encourages them to then share those tokens amongst other party members because there's only four. So DM inspiration mm -hmm. is basically giving advantage. You get an advantage roll. Yep. Bardic inf inspiration is a modifier roll, right? It's like a D6. Yep. Uh, it, yeah, and it goes up as the bard levels. Oh, okay. But you basically just get, you don't get to re-roll. You get to add whatever your extra roll is to. Yep. Okay. So it, it won't save you from a natural one, but it might prevent you from being hit one round or something. Or hitting that round. Like if you rolled, you know, you got a 19 and you needed a 20 to hit this monster, the inspiration will give you that extra one. And then now you succeeded right. in your attack. I mean, and you can double it up with like bless or guidance which is yeah which is like a d4 so like now you're getting a d4 plus a d8 or whatever so that's definitely more of like a tactic thing that's a strategy item yeah that one's a lot more tactic versus this which can be for anything because you can do it on saving throws and i know it doesn't say this but death saves are a saving throw and you absolutely can use your inspiration to make sure your <laughs> character doesn't die yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> Um, I mean, if you want to pull the Pathfinder thing, you can burn your inspiration to just auto-succeed. If you wanted to, there's some there's some instances. I think that works better if you have a limited amount of inspiration. If you were doing that, like, there's only four tokens that can be out at any one time, using it allows an instant success can really help you get a return on those chips. Because if you're like, oh, yeah, sure, I don't want to have to pick this lock again. Here, I just instant succeed, take your chip back. It can be a lot easier to make sure that they're flowing in the game more if that's something you're interested in. If you want them to not be like hoarded, having it as an instant success, whether it's not just a roll, no, you just you just succeed. Yeah, and, and um, that can be really useful. And I think, I, oh, this is like a monster of the week reference. I would treat it as like that middle success where it, what you do, mixed success. Mixed success. Yeah. So I think also um, the Star Wars games does this where yes, you succeed, but something else happens. Yeah, because yeah, unlike like uh, versus um like in Pathfinder, especially Pathfinder Two, you've got a success and then you have a critical success. It's just a normal success. It's not like you don't get like the bonuses from it. So like if you want someone to succeed, it's not a natural twenty. They succeeded, but they didn't like they didn't like get a nat twenty on they it. They just met the DC. Know? They just met the DC. The Apocalypse Engine does that, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a common tactic, but it's it's essentially, it's like what you're talking about about the gold stars. It's a reward for doing something the way, for, for encouraging your party to play the way you want them to play, which sounds weird when you say it, but it's encouraging your party to to play the, the story that you're laying out for them. And so for some DMs, that might not be something you're interested in doing. But for others, it can be a really useful tool when you're trying to encourage your party to do things. Mm -hmm. I think it would depend on the group. It does. I think it largely depends on the group. So, as a f slightly related, what is luck? Because I've heard of luck a lot, and I know that there's a difference between luck as like a rule and lucky as a player trait. So, there's lots of kinds of luck. There is halfling luck, which means you basically never roll a one, so you can never flub something you, completely. Technically, you can, but it's very, very hard. Yes, you have to really, you have to like really try at it to roll a one. Or there is the lucky feat, where you get to re-roll dice three times a game, essentially, or three times between long rests. Like, you can choose, essentially, to, to give yourself inspiration. You just, your character is lucky well it's it's also oh go ahead oh, go sorry ahead. no no i was just I was gonna, just gonna about... say <laughs> if you can't tell we're related go ahead tasha um i was just gonna talk about how how you can use it on other people and how that's really awesome because you can you can use it i think on any other creature so you can give your allies advantage and you can give your enemies disadvantage yeah because because you're you're you are inherently lucky so if that means instead of you just rolling better it means the players can't are harder you're harder to hit so the players are more likely to like get you know sand in their eye or whatever and so they miss this roll because you're just lucky um a great 
a great way to think about this is Han Solo is lucky. He has the lucky trait, without a doubt in my mind, because he does things that you're like, okay, there was no way you could have made that shot. Because he doesn't have the force, he's just lucky. So stuff like that can, can really influence the game. But there's one more way to get luck, and I think it's like a luck stone. There is a, there is yeah. a, a magic item, which is like stupidly powerful. Um, well, there's a couple, well, yeah, and I do want to point out, though, that technically, uh, Solo does, does have force powers, that's why he's lucky, but anyway, okay. I'm going to, you don't leave me alone. this is not a Star Wars cast, you two. I know. There's the luck stone, there's also, um, uh, Matt has his new spells, which are the Luxum spells, that allow you to, like, rewind time and, and do fortune's favor, which allows you to re-roll, but it takes the first little spell slot. Yeah. So, there's, there's a bunch of stuff essentially just works like advantage most of the time Mm -hmm. so there is there's the luck blade which is a legendary item and it's incredibly powerful so it has the ability wish which is part of why it's it's you know a legendary item but the ability for it is luck if the sword is on your person you can call on its luck no action required to re-roll one attack roll, ability check, or saving throw you dislike. You must use the second roll. This property can't be used again until next dawn. So it's essentially mm-hmm. a, you have DM's luck in your pocket every game. Mm-hmm. There's also... Well, then it has three wish spells, but that's... that's. Ugh. I mean, that's why it's legendary. <laughs> yeah. What was I going to say? Is this related back to inspiration? Oh, that's it. So here's the thing about both luck and DM inspiration. Sometimes if your DM already hands out advantage like candy, it's the same thing. It is. It's like having the lucky ability. So that's the the other reason why I think people don't end up using it a lot is because DMs in that moment will just give you advantage a lot faster. Yeah, I feel like that's what I see more yeah. often. Oh, now. and then there's the stone of good luck, which um Sorry, that one's not as powerful. I think the Luckstone used to be more powerful, but now it's just a plus one on ability checks. Sorry, Tasha, I totally interrupted you. No, no, you, you you were saying the same thing. I feel like there's there's another Lucky Stone that, that the Transmuter Stone might give you Lucky. Mm-hmm. But I would have to double check that. Yeah, like... Uh, but yeah, yeah. Just thinking about, like, the stuff that I am watching... Like, Matt Mercer and the whole Critical Role team, um, I don't watch too much of it, but I feel like if you... What am I trying to say? I feel like the style that I see most often for DMs in terms of media is if a player is able to make a good enough argument about why or how something works and why it should be included. Like if they can make a good enough argument about blank, then the DM will go, okay, I will grant you advantage for this thing because you clearly want it and you have thought it through and you know what the consequences are going to be if you don't get it versus as a reward. Like, I feel like there's, there's, the way that we've been talking about inspiration is definitely like a reward. Like this is a thing that I will hand to you if you do a good job to use later. But what I see most often, like in the adventure zone, especially is in the moment use, like immediate use. I think you are, I think you're, you're, you're right. I think in media and, and it, it's, it's essentially a variant of inspiration you you instead of giving them the ability to choose what role they get to re-roll you were telling them yeah sure you can re-roll that one role so you were essentially giving them inspiration cosmic inspiration in that one moment to do this specific thing versus letting them choose then in the future when they get to use that cosmic inspiration i think also at least in the games i've played personally this gets confused quite a bit with the aid that a player can give another player Because if you can do an action together, like if somebody says, I want to lift, or I want to push this boulder, before they roll, another character can go, I want to help them. And then they can both roll, and it's basically advantage. Now, depending on how you're playing, it can have different effects. Like maybe it's the average of the two that is the full roll, or 
Um, the higher of the two, that's the full roll, which it would be advantage. Um, but they don't both get advantage. It's one character plus another character. Mm-hmm. I feel like or that's used, can... at least when I'm playing, more often than a single character getting advantage. Yeah. It's, well, help action's a lot easier, and they have, like, several different subclasses that can take advantage of it. And then you have, where you can just do advantage by each of them rolling, too, which is, which is a fair way that, because sometimes you want to let the person with the higher skill set do it, but there's not a way for you to necessarily help right there. But, you know, your roll still is a shot. I feel like that can be abused a little bit easier, too, because it's not something that the DM is giving willingly. It's something that the players argue for, which if you're going for the argument use of inspiration anyway, whatever. But I feel like when I play, it, it's usually like a cop-out. Like what I see most often is a player saying, my character does blank and then they fail. And right when they fail, somebody else goes, oh, I want to help them. And it kind of puts the DM in this position where like, okay, you... I, Within the story, it's understandable that you would be helping somebody if they're struggling. But in terms of the rules, if they've already rolled and failed, it's it puts you in a funky position to say, well, no, you can't re-roll if it's something minor, like moving a boulder. Yeah, well, if you want to make it something in that situation, depending, I would just let the other person roll. Like, okay, now it's your turn. Yeah. But I can see it. Yeah, that's dumb. So you can't help them in this instance, but My, you are welcome to try yourself. I've come into issues with that, though, and, and this isn't about, like, luck or inspiration. Just, like, letting other players re-roll for things that other players have already done. Like, there's been a couple of times where... I or my partner will be rolling something and we fail and then somebody else on the party goes, well, let me try. And then they get to do it and they get whatever the reward is for that, be it the action or an actual reward. But I feel like sometimes that can leave the first player who was trying to do this thing feeling like their thunder was stolen. So that comes down to just GMing nuances. So sort of my rule of thumb when multiple people want to accomplish something for example if it is a task that is required to move on i am fine with letting the party figure out how to re-roll this a couple of times in order to move on like opening a door if they have to open this door then yeah sure everyone can take a shot at opening the door you know because it's not like they, they need it to move on if it's something like, I want to open a treasure chest, no, you all don't get to try to open the treasure chest. Whoever sees the treasure chest and is trying to open it, sure, someone can help them open that chest or try, or you guys can try to smash it open. But once you've tried an action on it, you need to come up with a different action to try to get it open. You are welcome to, as, as the fighter, to go over and just ruffle stomp the chest open. That's fine. It's a different check you're making now. So you are attempting to, to accomplish something in a different manner than the last people who tried something. Mm -hmm. and, and typically I require there's like an in-game time limit. Like these people are making the attempt to like open this chest. It's going to take them, quote unquote, 10 whole minutes if you guys want to try again because now you guys now you guys are sitting there bickering like building an ikea bookshelf you're sitting there bickering it's going to take you some time because now you guys are arguing on how to get this open versus the first time you try so retrying stuff is going to have in-game occurrences so like hey if you guys are trying to like run through a dungeon or you're in a burning building Trying to redo this is not going to happen. It's just it's just not. You're going to get attacked by monsters or I'm going to have some other consequence occur because you're wasting time doing this because you had to retry. Uh, and as a DM controlling the situation, that could mean precious um, minutes to getting to the boss, for example. Like if, <laughs> if your game... I, I think a majority of games aren't usually on a timeline like that. But let's say, for example, it takes your party too long to get through a level of a tower to get up to the evil wizard at the top. Well, if they've already been raffle stomping a bunch of stuff up to that point, it stands within reason that the wizard would be aware of their presence and is trying to hightail it out of there not to get killed. Mm -hmm, so if it yeah. takes them too long, you can either go, okay, you can come up with another way or you can keep pushing through this door and take blank amount of time. 
Well, if they choose the latter and they just want to try and keep getting through that door, I think it's within the DM's reason to be able to go, okay, well, you get to the top and there's a bunch of clues, but the dude you were looking for is gone. Or he's had time to prep. Like, he's got a bunch of spells that are already been cast. Like, now he's got, like, extra wards or he's summoned monsters that are already there that he doesn't have to waste time in game to cast you know he's got his mage armor up and he summoned you know a water elemental that's in the room already like he would have done that at the first round but now it's already here that kind of stuff um i think another way to to handle this is there are a few situations where it's called take a 20 and this is kind of an older rule but if you spend a blank amount of time doing a task it will succeed period like trying to open the stupid door Mm -hmm. it's like all right between the you know the six of you you guys spend you know 30 minutes and you can beat the door down like i'll allow that like you can accomplish that i think in certain circumstances there's some stuff that i don't i don't allow them to take a 20 or take a 10 on because it's not it's not required for them to move through the storyline yeah no no, exactly if if they're trying to dick around you you can you're you can fail stuff that you're just trying to dick around with. I don't care if you are succeed at doing that, but if it's literally open the door, which I know I keep using that as an example, but god doors sometimes are really hard to open for parties. I feel like doors yeah. are the number one barrier for any party. They are. Doors are ridiculous. So I always come back to door. So for opening a door or whatever or trying to advance in the story it it can be it can be a way to get around that. Yeah. Um Sometimes solving a puzzle, too, if they just really aren't getting the puzzle. You can say, okay, you guys spend the next 30 minutes and able to get the puzzle yeah. open. Like, mm-hmm. because if they stop having fun, you need to figure out an easy out yeah, for them. Yeah, like a... Because mm-hmm. they're not enjoying yeah, it anymore. I mean, yeah. Um, to kind of go back to the inspiration question in terms of, like, playing within a character, I feel like letting other characters re-roll for things that you're trying to do can hurt as a player especially for me and the folks I play with we get really into character and especially if you're new it can feel like you're being steamrolled if you're trying to do something that you've been thinking about that you think would add to your character that you think is like within the realm of your character and you can't do it, and then somebody else does, it can feel like you're... Sorry, my kitten's crying. <laughs> but I don't know, it can feel like your 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 big, you know, in-character development moment, even if it isn't that big, even if it's super minor, is lost or forgotten or stolen. And I think the big thing there is like all of our conversations come back to communication because likely the people who quote stole it from you don't know that you feel this way. If you're just sitting there and stewing the DM has too many things on their mind to notice that you're uncomfortable unless it's really loud, uncomfortable. So I've had a lot of conversations about, about this between just like people who were like, well, I wanted to do blank and I failed or the DM said no, and then somebody else just worded it differently, and now they get to do it, but I don't. Yeah. I feel like that's a moment where you have to either, as a player, sit back and go, okay, it's a game, it's okay. Or speak up and say, hey, I really wanted to do that for blank reasons. And then have that conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think sometimes mentioning it up front if you were having a, this is a character development moment in your GM, either discuss it before the game. If you know that something's coming up that needs to be a character development moment, tell your GM. Because then your GM is like, oh, you want to have interpersonal drama? Hell yes! So typically your GM's willing to allow interpersonal drama. And will then work with you in order to make it happen. Yeah. Or if you realize interpersonal drama is about to occur or should occur for your character, like you think this would be a really cool moment for your character... Say it. Say, hey, if I'm allowed to pour, pull the sword from the stone, this is going to resolve some of my weird angsty moments. You're like, all right, let's let the, let's let the rogue try to pull the sword from the stone. Secretly, he's been King Arthur this whole time, and this needs to occur. But the GM doesn't realize that this is important to your character unless you say it yeah. is. We can't, 
We are not mind readers. Despite all yeah. evidence, <laughs> we can't actually read your mind. No, and I think it also comes down to if you're playing with a party that you know really well. Like, if I was playing with Tasha and Beth and our, let's say, our, our Desert Palace crew, somebody steals my thunder, I'm either going to go, hey, asshole, that was my plan, and there would be no feelings hurt. Or I'd just let them have it, because it, it in the long run, it doesn't freaking matter. But if you're playing with strangers or friends of friends that you don't know, the players aren't mind readers either. And it's hard to read people you don't know. So just remember to speak up and advocate for yourself. Especially, not not even just against the the DM, but like with other players. People get really into what they're doing. They like to be the center of attention. And some people really don't like to be the center of attention. So when they want to be center of attention, it's hard to say, Hey, I'd like to be center of attention for a moment. Because it, it feels like you're ruining the moment or something like that. It just, there's a lot of reasons. Just remember, for I think everything, just remember it's a game. We're here to have fun. And if you're not having fun, something's wrong and we have to talk about it. That's, yes, very true. Another thing you can do is address the DC. Yeah. Um, I feel like that's what. Both um, up yeah. and down. That, I've seen Beth do that several times. <laughs> I totally kick that, like. Mercer straight up will tell you, yo, if you try again, I it's going to be harder. <laughs> yeah, I, I do that too. Um, But yeah, that's that's the other nice thing about being the GM. They don't actually know what the DC is. And to be fair, like 95% of the time, I don't actually know what the DC is either. I just, you, you roll and you tell me a number and either my brain goes, yeah, that sounds good or no, that's yeah, not Yeah, and enough. if you're looking at um, like, <laughs> let's say, breaking down a standard door, on a scale of 1 yeah. to 20, that door is going to break around a 10. It's not hard to get through a door if your strength is high enough. Mm-hmm. Now, if it's a locked door or a reinforced door or a spellbound door, that DC is going to go up. Yeah. So th- these are all things that, that can be negotiated and talked with amongst a, a amongst your party. And then as the GM... I, I think certain rules like inspiration or the aid action and stuff like that are built into the system to allow you to do to play the story the way you want to play it. Mm-hmm. Because it, it, it is essentially built in rules that allow you to do things like, well, I'm going to let you reroll this and to feel comfortable that you're not you're not like breaking from the rules because there's a rule that allows the GM to say, yeah, you can reroll that. So this is essentially sort of like Wizards of the Coast approved, you know, go forth and and flub rolls and give people advantage because you're the GM and you are allowed to make those decisions. It's not wrong for you to take control of the reality of your world. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is the thing that most new DMs would have have struggled with and it's one of the things where i see kids rpgs try to negate um so instead of necessarily having dcs they have roll-offs which what they do is you assign a die and then it's versus their die and then you roll (laughs) and whoever has the higher wins it's just it just makes it super easy if you want to do that go ahead you don't know what the dc of this is roll a d20 real quick find out this is all negotiable. Mm-hmm. I mean, it all comes down to the DM's preference of rules. Mm-hmm. That's it. Mm-hmm. I would say, um, as a baseline rule, whatever rules you're choosing, you need to remain consistent, or it's not going to feel fair. Mm. That's true. This can be hard, though, to develop to to, to develop your consistency over time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You, you. If you're going to introduce a new rule, talk to your party about it before you introduce a new rule. Um, if you are new to playing, your consistency may change. But if someone brings up to you that they feel like you are being inconsistent, you need to keep note of that because likely you are, and you just didn't notice that you were being inconsistent. It's okay. Just try to remember 
if you need to jot down what your extra homebrew rules are or jot down what you think should or shouldn't happen in these situations, it'll help you remember. But it's something that you will learn how to, to do over yeah. time. It's just an experience thing. Yeah, that's the, that's the hardest one with the adjusting DC is just knowing what an appropriate DC is. And that, unfortunately, as much as they give you charts and they tell you it's something you feel out. Mm -hmm. It's a gut check. Which, you know, is weird for a game that's entirely revolved around rules and charts and tables that about two-thirds of it is a gut check. But it is. Honestly. Yeah, because it's a story game. Well, that about covers it, y'all. Thanks for hanging in there. We talked a long time about uh, wishy-washy rules, which, you know, is the whole game. So... Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear more appointments from the doctors, be sure to submit your questions to our Twitter at DearDoctorDM or DearDoctorDM at gmail.com. Also, you can rate, review, and comment on iTunes or Anchor or wherever you get your podcasts, and it'll help our show grow. Please, please, please share it with your friends and your party members. Um, you can just have them go to anchor.fm forward slash doctor-dm. That's us. All our episodes are there to stream online. So, thanks everybody. The doctors are out. Bye guys. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.